to the question, what on earth am I here for? It's a question that is pregnant with multiple answers. In the grand scheme of things, we were created for God's pleasure. We were created for worship. But as I ask this question today, I'm thinking more about the immediate reason for your existence. Not everybody else. I'm talking about your existence and my existence. The immediate reason why God made us. What is my purpose? What if I told you that all of humanity was created with a purpose? That every individual was specifically designed by God to accomplish a specific purpose. Do you believe that today? According to scripture, it is true. Listen to the words of the psalmist as recorded in Psalm chapter 139, verses 13 and 14. By the way, this is not my primary text today. We will be in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Some of y'all like to turn ahead of time to that, so I welcome. If you would like to turn there, you can. But I want to read to you Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. What that tells me is that we are not random results, but rather we are God's handiwork, specifically designed by him to accomplish his purposes. In fact, there are multiple examples in scriptures of those who were born with their purpose already defined for them. For example, as we discussed in the Advent season, you remember John the Baptist and his birth, it was actually preceded by a prophecy that he would prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. But it wasn't just John the Baptist. In the Old Testament, we read of Moses who was set apart even as a child to deliver the people of Israel from their bondage. And it was Samuel who even before his conception, his mother had dedicated him to service in the temple. And it is his writing that much of today's sermon will come out of. Clearly, God had a purpose for them even before they were born. Still others would discover that purpose at some point later in life, almost as a surprise to those around them. For example, although God had been revealing his plan to Joseph through dreams for many years, his brothers didn't really understand it until much later in life. Perhaps it was in Genesis 50, 20, when it finally clicked for them, as Joseph declares, what you intended to harm me, God intended it for good, the saving of many lives. Clearly, God had a plan for his life well before the people recognized God had a plan for his life. In fact, the person that we're going to talk about today is one of those kinds of people. We're talking about the one who would become known as King David. I will share that this is perhaps the most difficult sermon that I have ever had to prepare, primarily because there's so much to the story of David. 
I could easily have done an entire series on King David, and maybe somewhere down the road I will. But I want you to see four things about David that arguably made him one of the greatest kings of all time. A little later, I'll summarize the remainder of the passage, but for now, we'll just read two verses. We read from 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. It says, David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. You need to know that David's story did not begin with him taking the throne as we see happening here in this chapter. The reality is that David's story began much earlier. As we look back at his story, we see that God's hand was always in his story. This was God's plan all along. He was orchestrating things so that they would happen at just the right time. 1 Samuel chapter 17, we are told that David was the youngest of eight brothers in the house of a man named Jesse. I think at times that the Schmutz family is going for that. They're trying to get the eight brothers. Actually, David was the youngest of eight brothers. Clearly, as the youngest in a culture where they valued age, the oldest was important. The tallest, the biggest was important. The youngest and the smallest, well, it didn't really say a whole lot for them. Their future was really minimal because nobody expected anything of them. David was considered the least of his brothers. We'll come back to some of the exploits of David as a young man, but I first want you to see that God is the one who orchestrated everything in David's life. In 1 Samuel 16, we see that God is ready to change the leadership in Israel. The current king is a guy named Saul, who started off well, but he developed a sinful and unrepentant heart. As a result, Samuel, the prophet of God, is sent out by God to anoint the next king of Israel. I doubt that some great announcement was made at that moment in time, especially as Saul is still the king. And we know later on he will display his willingness to kill those who will serve as a threat to his throne. But immediately upon Samuel's arrival at Jesse's house, there would have been a deep sense of honor and celebration. It is likely that Samuel would have immediately identified the purpose of his visit. Can you imagine him telling Jesse, hey, I've come today because the Lord is telling me one of your sons is going to be the next king of Israel. Immediately, Jesse would have been overwhelmed. Yes, this is what I've wanted to see. This would have been an incredible honor for him that day. So Jesse calls all of his boys together. He invites them in from the fields where they've been working, but he can't just leave the sheep out there by themselves. So he instructs David, the youngest, the smallest, the least significant of the boys to remain with the sheep. So he likely probably wasn't even necessary for this meeting anyways. Remember, the youngest and the smallest well, he's not going to be the one that Samuel will come and anoint. 
if anybody, it's probably going to be the, the oldest or maybe the biggest and the strongest, but David's just a young boy. And then each of the sons of Jesse, not including David, are paraded in front of Samuel. The first one would have been the oldest. He's big and he's strong. He is a good-looking man, and Samuel is impressed with what he sees. In fact, he seems ready to make his decision already. We don't need to have everybody else come through. This is the man. But the Lord says to him in 1 Samuel 16, 7, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. One by one, the rest of the sons are marched in front of Samuel. And none is found to be worthy of becoming the next king of Israel. Remember that excitement where Jesse's saying yes, and he's excited about what's going to take place. Can you imagine how the room seemed to deflate as one by one each of the boys was inadequate? Is it possible that Samuel got this wrong? I picture Samuel looking at Jesse and saying, is, is that it? <laughs> He's not here. Do you have any other sons? Well, Jesse responds, well, there is still the youngest, but he's out tending the sheep right now. Bring him in. Let's see this boy. And then we read in verses 12 and 13 of that same passage. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Although his father and brothers likely saw him as just a little boy, God already had a plan for David's life. Although it would not be today, he would one day become the next king of Israel. And I suggest to each of you that God has a plan and a purpose for your life as well. You are more than the accidental result of human cells mutating. You are more than random. You were created in God's image and you were created with a specific purpose in mind. Not in your mind, but in his mind. He had a plan for you. Now, maybe others have not believed in you, much like David's brothers and perhaps even his father did not believe in him. But God has believed in you. In fact, he intentionally designed you to do things that nobody else could do. And he has been preparing you for his purposes from the moment that you were conceived. Do you believe that today? Because I believe today that within the church, there is almost a culture of not expecting God to do much through us. 
There's almost this idea that I will never measure up to the greats who have gone before us. And I will tell you, this church has a great foundation. We have a great heritage where we have seen some incredibly godly people. If I were to begin the names of people that have been examples in this church, influences in this church, I would hear people saying amen. Those are the godly men and women that we need. But they're not just a thing of the past. God created you in his image to accomplish great things. Do you believe that today? In David's case, we would see his gifting in so many different ways. Do you remember the story of David and Goliath? We learned it probably in uh, vacation Bible school or Sunday school or something like that. When everyone else was afraid of this giant, when everyone else is hiding behind rocks and trees, it was David who displayed great courage and faith by standing up against Goliath. But I would add that David also displayed great influence and persuasion. We talk about the courage and the faith because David is a young man still. He's not yet the king. And here he is. He's going to battle this giant. Man, that takes a lot of faith. It takes a lot of courage to be able to do that. But if you remember the story, each morning Goliath would go out and challenge the warriors of Israel. The challenge was simple. You send out your champion and we will send out our champion. If you beat us, we'll be subject to you. If we beat you, you'll be subject to us. That sounds really nice. After all, maybe we'll have less bloodshed. But there's a huge risk for Israel by sending out a young man, a boy, who really had just gone to bring lunch to his brothers. There is a huge risk for Israel by sending out this young man to fight this giant. If he loses, we all lose. So what was it that persuaded the king to allow David to go out and fight this giant? Maybe it was his can-do attitude. You know, everybody else is hiding, and this guy's saying, no, we shouldn't be hiding. We should be out there doing something about it. Maybe it was that can-do. There's nothing that we cannot do. Maybe it was his clear confidence Not just in himself, although he does talk about some of the things he's done as a boy. Maybe it was his clear confidence that the Lord could provide. In other words, it doesn't matter that I'm just a small boy. It doesn't matter that I'm so much smaller than this guy. My God is able to provide the victory. Or maybe it was somehow obvious to King Saul and those in his company that David was already under the anointing of God. Perhaps the greatest gift that David had was his ability to get the best out of some of the worst kinds of people. We're talking about all the gifts that God gave him. Man, he was really gifted. There are a group of people noted in 2 Samuel 23 who are usually just referred to as David's mighty men. I told you I could do an entire series just on David. David had a group of people referred to as David's mighty men. 
Among them were some of the most ruthless and dishonest people that anyone could ever imagine. They were mostly rejects from neighboring nations, but they found a place where they belonged when they began to follow after David. These men believed so much in David that they would willingly lay down their own lives in service to him. In fact, in that particular chapter in 2 Samuel 23, it describes multiple times where these individuals basically were willing to die just to satisfy David. At one point, David wants water. Doesn't say he needs water, he wants water. And three of them, all right, let's go get it even though they've got to pass through enemy lines to be able to get it. I will say that one was a little bit of an odd story because at the end of it, David is ashamed that he had said this in front of them and that they had so willingly put themselves in jeopardy for him. You know what he does with the water? He pours it out. (laughs) I picture those three guys looking like, are you kidding me? Perhaps a good comparison for this unruly group of mighty men would be found in something that's far more recent. Most of y'all know who Michael Jordan is. He used to play basketball for the Chicago Bulls. I remember watching them as a teenager and everyone wanted to be like Mike. But Michael Jordan knew that if they were going to be the best... They would need another piece to their puzzle. They had a pretty good team already, but there was something missing. As a result, they brought in this, and I do not mean this as an insult. It just accurately describes them. They brought in this mentally unstable guy named Dennis Rodman. Now, nobody would disagree that he was a loose cannon, but he was also one of the greatest rebounders in NBA history. And he gave the Chicago Bulls an incredible edge. Yes, there was a risk with him. But by having him on the team, Michael Jordan was able to actually develop him to where he became one of the greatest players in NBA history. That's what these guys would have been like. David's mighty men. They wouldn't have been acceptable by themselves. And somehow David was able to take them and turn them into something great. There's no doubt that David had a way of getting the best out of people. In a manner, he gave them value. And indirectly, he becomes a uniter, a unifier. He takes foreigners who could have very easily served as enemies to one another. And he puts them together all on the same team. So as we look at David's gifts, there are many. He was a man of great courage and great faith. He was a man of great influence and persuasion. He was also one who could unite other people, turning losers into champions. Those are some pretty great qualities and characteristics. I want you to know that all of those gifts, all of those characteristics came from the Lord. David's parents didn't send him out to some school of leadership. I remember as a college student, attending a great leadership conference at Taylor's University out in Indiana. I don't think that David was sent to a bunch of different conferences where he learned what leadership should look like. Instead, he was simply gifted by God to do what needed to be done. 
I want you to know that this same gifting is available to you today. There is no doubt that you will not get the same gifts as David, nor will you get them in the same measure as David. God gives to each of us in accordance with what we need. Then it is up to us to make sure that we are good stewards and getting using what we have received. Now, here's the thing. I told you earlier that there are many today who no longer believe that God has a purpose and a plan for them. I also believe that in the church, there are many who were looking at the gifts of others, and we have assumed that God will not give us the gifts that we need. Oh, we may not say that, but we act like it. The fact is, if God calls you to do something, he will always equip you to do whatever he's called you to do. He will not abandon you to it. He will not leave you in this helpless state that says, I want you to do it, but you got to figure it out all on your own. Instead, he will give you the gifts that you need to accomplish his purposes. I need you to note that this gifting directly led to prosperity and blessing. In verse 10 of our passage there in 2 Samuel 5, in verse 10, we see that he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. What a beautiful description. In the verses that preceded this passage today in 2 Samuel 5, we see that David is fighting a group of people. They're called the Jebusites, and he does win. They are the ones who previously occupied what has been renamed in our passage, the city of David. It's Jerusalem. But what do we know about the Jebusites? Well, we know that they were from the land of Canaan. That's a good place to start. And actually, they have an incredibly ugly story. They are descendants from the line of Ham, Noah's son. But they are repeatedly identified by their wickedness and their pagan worship, which likely even included child sacrifice. As a result of this horrid sin, God's judgment would be passed upon them, and they are included among the many nations whom Joshua is instructed to destroy, wiping them from the very face of the earth. In Joshua chapter 11, we do see that the king of the Jebusites is killed. However, as I read 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6, which says, The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. What that tells me is that Joshua failed to complete what God had called him to do. Had he truly wiped them out, they wouldn't be here for David to deal with. Now, I want to be clear that Joshua always had all that he needed in order to accomplish God's plan for his life, but it appears that he never finished the job. That is something that I think leaders often struggle with, but maybe even the body of Christ struggles with. We know God has a purpose. We know that he has gifted us to do it and we start out on the right track, but somewhere along the way we grow content and we do not finish the job that God called us to do. I will also add that failure to act on the part of a leader will always carry with it consequences. Failure to drive out those who oppose the people of God would carry long-term consequences with them. 
Generations have passed since Joshua failed to lead as well as he should have. And the Israelites are still battling the same Jebusites. And so we see David having to do what Joshua should have done years earlier. In a manner, David redeems Joshua's failure. He makes right what should have been done previously. Now, it's easy to see that through all of this, all of the Lord's gifting, David is leading God's people well. He is accomplishing much. But I want you to see something else about David. And I'll touch on this only briefly because I am certain that almost everyone in here, if not all of you, have heard the rest of this story. Although David was a good king, blessed by God, David was also a very sinful man. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we are told that at the time when kings go off to war, David stayed home. In this season of compromise, it wasn't a sin for him to stay home, but it was a compromise. He wasn't where he needed to be. In this season of compromise, David ends up in an adulterous relationship with a woman named Bathsheba. And in the weeks and the months ahead, David would further reveal himself to be also a liar and a murderer. So often within this story, we focus on the sexual immorality that took place and even the murder. And I do get why we lean on those things because those are significant acts. But I want you to consider something that may have been even worse, which David did during this season of compromise. I told you about David's mighty men just a few moments earlier. They were ruthless and they were cruel, but they saw within David something worthy of following. They saw his faith. They saw his courage. They saw a man who deserved honor and respect. I want you to hear about two of those mighty men just for a moment. Actually, I told you that their list of mighty men is included in 2 Samuel 23. And I'm going to share about the first one on the list and the last one on the list. We'll start with the last one. The very last name on this list is a guy named Uriah the Hittite. Maybe you wonder why that name matters. Well, Uriah had a wife and her name was Bathsheba. Tell you the truth, that sounds really familiar. I thought David was having an adulterous relationship with a woman named Bathsheba. It's the same woman. This man who has devoted himself to David, to serving him, David is having an affair with his wife. To make things worse, in order to cover up for his own sin. David will now orchestrate the murder of Uriah the Hittite. Something is wrong in David's heart. Something is, it's not just the fact that he committed sexual immorality. There is so much ugliness within him. Something is wrong. The second one of David's mighty men that I'll mention to you is a guy named Joab, who had become the commander of David's army. Why does that matter? In order to cover up for David's sexual sin, he involves Joab in the act of murdering Bathsheba's husband. 
Now, it's bad enough that David has chosen poorly for himself. He has committed sexual immorality. He has chosen a life of sin. But now he has become a stumbling block to those who have chosen to follow after him. So much for the man of great faith and courage, someone who was worthy of respect. Again, how dark David's heart must have become. It was no doubt a very ugly season in his life. At the end of this ugly season, we see David's prayer as recorded in Psalm chapter 51. I won't read all of it to you, but I want to read a few verses from his prayer. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Skipping down to verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David was clearly a sinful man. I confess that I struggle a little bit with this story. How do I reconcile this reality of his sinfulness with the fact that God refers to him as a man after God's own heart. I mean, is God okay with such immorality? The answer is absolutely not. Remember that even in this passage today, David is defeating the Jebusites because of their sinful choices. And the reason David was anointed the next king of Israel was because Saul had chosen a life of sin. However, perhaps what makes David acceptable before the Lord is found in his prayer of repentance. This prayer where he owns his sin, he confesses it, and he begs that God would cleanse him from it. The idea is that I will no longer carry this sin with me. It won't be the place where I find my identity. Instead, I will find my identity in God. That pleased the Lord. And the Lord, in turn, would grant him incredible grace. My guess is that every one of us has committed numerous sins. They may not be the same sins that David committed. I hope not. But all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I am so grateful today for the grace that he has made available to us. And it's so easy to find the shortcomings of other people. And we look at David and it would be very easy to allow his sin with Bathsheba, having Uriah the Hittite killed. It would be easy to identify him just by those things. But because of God's grace, we celebrate him as one of the greatest kings ever. There were certainly consequences to David's sin. People would die. His family would suffer. 
But, and I do need you to hear this, David's sin did not disqualify him from accomplishing God's purposes and plan. I think sometimes maybe we assume because there's been sin in our lives, God can no longer accomplish great things through us. That we've messed up God's plan. And there's no way that God can make up for our sin. He can no longer use us. That's not true. Now you may have to come back before the Lord and confess and turn from that sin and surrender fully to the Lord once more. But God can still accomplish great things in and through you. But we must be willing to surrender to him in order to do that. I will tell you, I wish none of us could be described like David during that time of ugliness and darkness. But my guess is that within the church, there are an awful lot of people. I'm not just talking about this church, but the church as a whole. There are an awful lot of people who have become identified by their sin and they no longer believe that God could do something through them. It is simply not true. What I hope that you've gotten out of this message today as I kind of begin wrapping things up. First, I want you to know that God does have a plan for your life. It doesn't matter if other people can see it. It doesn't matter if other people believe in you. God created you for a specific purpose. God has a plan for your life. And that plan is likely greater than anything you or I could ever have come up with on our own. It doesn't mean that you're going to be the next president, you're going to be the next king or whatever. But what it does mean is that God has a plan for you. You are not an accident. In fact, he has been gifting you all along so that you can accomplish his plan and purpose. If you think that you're pretty good at something, please know that God made you that way on purpose. So you need to be a good steward with that. Look at the gifts that God has given you. Use them for his glory to accomplish his purposes. But in order to accomplish God's great purpose, you may first have to address some of the sin that has crept into your life. You may have come before the Lord. You may need to come before the Lord. I know you did it before. You may need to do it again. Lord, I'm sorry for the choices that I've made. I know I surrendered my life once, but I've taken it back. We've acted like living sacrifices. The problem with a living sacrifice, you lay a living sacrifice on the altar, it has a tendency to get up and walk away or to run away. That's why the sacrifice is typically bound so that it cannot. Too many of us, we've gone and we've said some magic prayer that says, Lord, forgive me and make me new. But then we've lived like it didn't mean anything. We've allowed sin to remain, sometimes to fester and to grow. David had seasons where he was so full of courage and faith and clearly a season took place where David allowed sin to reign in his life. And what he needed to do was to go back and say, Lord, I am so sorry. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Make me whole. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. 
Maybe what needs to happen is some of us who have allowed sin to take root in our lives, we need to go back before the Lord and say, I have not lived up to the standard that I committed to when I knelt at that altar and prayed. Maybe it's time for us once more to declare, God, I am yours. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Lord, I pray that you would fill me and work in me. It is time for us to get right before the Lord. Your past sins... They do not preclude you from accomplishing God's great plan. In fact, I'll add one last thought with this this morning. Although God is not okay with our sinful choices, you should know that he was not surprised at all by those sinful choices. When he created you, he knew the decisions you would make. He is all-knowing. He knew the times that you would fail. He knew the times that you would shine. He knew everything about you. God knew that David would commit sexual immorality with Bathsheba. He knew that he would have Uriah the Hittite killed, yet he chose David anyways. God knew that Moses would kill a man. God knew that Paul would have Christians arrested. God knew that all kinds of people would sin, yet he chose them to do great things. You should know that God chose you in spite of all of those things. Now, what you do from this point, he's placing it in your court. He says, I have a plan for you. I have given you the gifts. What will you do with it? If you will confess your sin, he is faithful and just. He will forgive you of your sins. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And I will tell you that God has great plans still in store for you but we must make sure that our hearts are right with him first. If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we are so grateful. We are so grateful for your grace. The truth is every one of us has sinned. We are no better or worse than David or Moses or any of these individuals that are described to us in your word. We have all sinned and fallen short of your glory. We had everything we needed sitting in front of us, but for some reason we wanted more. And we have needed your grace. Lord, some of us remain in our sin today, or perhaps we've chosen to try to make ourselves better, but we've yet to come before you and confess where we have fallen short. So right now, Lord, we confess our sin. We know that our greatest need is forgiveness and grace from you. So I pray right now that you would grant that. Lord, as we confess with our mouths and hearts, Lord, I pray that you would forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May we know that our hearts have been made right with you. But not just because of what eternity will look like beyond this moment. But we pray that you would work in and through us, that your blessing would flow through us, that you would accomplish greater things in and through us simply because we were fully surrendered to you. We don't want to be like Saul. We don't want to be like those who uh, had opposed the Israelites, the Jebusites. We want to be like David, who recognized our need for you and immediately began to seek you asking that your Holy Spirit would once again be poured out on him. Lord, I, I pray for that for us today. 
I pray that you would accomplish incredible things through us. And Lord, I pray that we would recognize that it's not about us. It's all about you. Thank you for the gifts. Thank you for the abilities. Help us to be a good steward with it. Lord, I pray today that your anointing would rest upon us. And I look forward to seeing what you do in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, before I dismiss you, I know it's time for me to let you go. Let, let me just say this. If, if you have allowed sin to reign in your life, God is offering you grace today. And I know that I'm talking about leadership today, but the greatest gift that he could give us is forgiveness of sins. The gift of eternal life. Man, I want you to accomplish great things. And I do believe that in order to do that, to truly accomplish God's plan, you need to make sure that your heart is right. So yes, from the leadership side, you need this. I'm telling you, just from the humanity side, we all need the grace of God. We need the forgiveness of sins that he has made available to us. And if you have not yet received it, man, I would love to be able to talk with you, to be able to pray with you, and to be able to walk this journey with you. So I invite you, after we get out of here today, come and find me. I would love to be able to talk with you and to be able to pray with you and support you. It is such a blessing to have each of you with us today. And I look forward to seeing what God does. We're in a new series, just started this morning. It's entitled, The Making of a King. Next week, we're going to look at Solomon. I will tell you, this one's a little bit uncomfortable because we're going into Valentine's Day. What pastor wants to talk about Solomon at Valentine's Day? <laughs> it's not me. But that being said, it's where the Lord's leading us. Come back and join us next week. <laughs>